Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Simon Seaton. Simon is an incredible CEO, Executive Vice President of the Society of Petroleum Engineers International, which is actually quite exciting, actually. Simon, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, I will. Thank you, Michelle. So, as you said, my current role is uh, CEO of the Society of Petroleum Engineers. That's a very new role. I started in July of this year, but I've had uh, over 32 years of, of oil and gas industry experience, uh, starting in, in Aberdeen in 1990, where I went to work uh, for Bayroid, and uh, and then a career that went through Halliburton, went to Sodexo, the large French multinational, and then as I said, in, in July this year, I joined the SPE. Okay. So you've had an amazing career because you've gone from Halliburton to Sodexo and then to your current role at the Society of Petroleum Engineers. It's quite a diverse a diverse career that you've had. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. And I think that's been by choice for me. I worked 22 years for Halliburton. I, I enjoyed that company. I, I had a great time. I learned so much and they gave me some incredible opportunities. But I also got to the point where I, I wanted to do something different. And for me, I couldn't imagine walking out of Halliburton, taking off red coveralls and then putting on blue coveralls and, and now saying I work for company X and the, my product is better than the other product. <laughs> so to me, it was like I wanted to do something different. And so Sodexo was, was a very different type of business, French company, so so not North American, and was a very diverse and broad-based company. So it didn't just have oil and gas business, had lots of other businesses. So it was very diverse, very different. And uh, obviously going from senior director of deep water at Halliburton to running food and camp facility operations at Sodexo was, was very different. And so I like that. And then after that opportunity to come and work for the Society of Petroleum Engineers, a nonprofit organization, a, a membership society, not a, not a publicly traded company, again, was a very challenging and, and diverse move. And, and I liked I liked to do that. I like to put myself in, in those different environments. Okay, so, so the same industry, but lots of different types of roles. Okay, so what made you go from maybe a corporate type of role into like a non-profit? I, I think the, the different set of challenges, the fact that it's not about how much profit we generate for shareholders, it's about making the members of the society happy and excited about the role that we're playing. There's obviously a big dynamic shift in our industry right now. Uh, as we talk about the energy transition and, and the, the role that oil and gas will play in that going forward, and I thought to be at the center of that and to be at the center of those discussions and, and represent you know, 100,000 members was, uh, was a great opportunity. And an, and an interesting way to see if the, the leadership skills I'd worked in the profit world would, would apply in the nonprofit world. Okay. How do you think that the 
the oil well, the oil industry is going to fail over the over the many years to come. Well, my usual answer to that question, if I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't need to work for the SPE. I don't think anyone knows for sure. I'm the optimist. I'm always the glass half full person. I'm always the person who says um, there's a role for our industry in the future. It will have to change. You know, the importance of oil and gas as a feedstock is not going anywhere under any scenario. So we will still need oil and gas for a long time for products and feedstocks. And I believe we'll continue to need it for energy, perhaps in different formats, perhaps in different countries, some countries rather than other countries where they may have access to wind or solar resources that, that other countries don't. But I, I believe there's a there's a long road ahead for our industry, but it, there will be a change. And I think, you know, Things like carbon capture are, are really exciting, and a lot of talk about that at SPE events right now. The expansion to geothermal power production, and there's a lot of crossover between oil and gas and, and how we drill and execute geothermal projects, that expertise. Hydrogen projects have a lot of uh, overlap as well. So the skill set and the knowledge and, and the roles, I think, will still be there. Okay. Do you think that we have the necessary expertise to 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 carry out that new roles? And then I think that's I think the um, I think a lot of them are directly transferable. So carbon capture, underground sequestration, uh, geothermal drilling. Those are those are skills that exist today, actually nowhere other than the oil and gas industry. So if those things are going to happen, it will come out of our industry. Other things, you know. Maybe we will have to uh, have to be open to to new ideas and new training, but that's one of the things our members are telling us, and they're asking for us at our events to to talk about what are the skill sets needed, what are the the uh, opportunities that, that will come as this unfolds. But the challenge is, of course, no one's exactly sure how how and when it will unfold. Okay, excellent. So. I was going to go back and, and discuss yourself. So how did you actually get started in the oil and gas industry then? You know, as a lot of people probably uh, have said to you, it was there wasn't a huge plan. I was at university and my friend, uh, I spent, you know, we roommates in our last year at university was in geology. He got a job as a mud logger. So he went offshore to work as a mud logger and, I saw that the money was good, and I saw he was getting two weeks off when he was not offshore, and I thought that was good. So I thought I had a chemistry degree, so I figured I could find something to do offshore with that, and I ended up working as a as a mud engineer, drilling fluids engineer. And uh, yeah, I thought I might do it for two or three years and, and travel around and, and see some stuff, and uh, 33 years later, I'm still in the industry. Okay. Did you like working offshore? Because not offshore is not not for everybody. Yeah, I think the fact out of my thirty-three years, I've only spent three of them offshore probably answers that question. <laughs> I really enjoyed the industry. I really enjoyed the people. But uh, yeah, I, I have a friend of mine, very similar background, started about the same time. I mean, he worked twenty-five years offshore and loved it, and that that was what he wanted to do. For me, it was a great experience. I love going offshore. I've had the opportunity as a leader to to go back out to platforms and go back out to rigs for for safety and visits or inspections or project kickoff meetings, and and I and I really like it. But 
yeah, it, it just it didn't appeal to me to spend my career working offshore. Okay, excellent. So, have you had any uh, role models? Uh, why did you find them inspirational? I think you know, role models is is interesting. Quite, there are people in my career I look back on who who absolutely kind of made the difference for me. The first one is a guy who I'd been working offshore for a few years in Aberdeen. I then went into the office for a little while, but I, I wasn't sure that I wanted to stay working in in that job. And so, someone in the Houston office said, uh, "Well, come to come to me." I, come and work for me in Houston. And I was single at the time. I was 25, 26, got the opportunity to go work in Houston. And and he sort of very much early stage of my career was saying, you know, you, you can achieve whatever you think you can dream you can achieve. So he was very encouraging to me and supported me and would take me into meetings and things like that, that um, I probably had no business being in, but um, he saw, he saw that, you know, he took, that role as a mentor for me uh, uh, very early on. I worked for an amazing guy called Craig Floyd at Halliburton, who you know really taught me a lot about leadership, and and I, a lot of his the things I learned from him I, I carry with me. You know, when I went to Sodexo, I had uh, the opportunity to work with a guy called Michel Landel, a French guy who was absolutely passionate about diversity and gender equality, and and I learned a lot about how a leader, male leader has to show up in that space. And and I, he was inspirational to me. And the last CEO at Sodexo that I worked for, Denny Mashawell, is another guy that was, um, yeah, uh, in terms of uh, always available. This was the CEO of a 10 billion euro market cap, four, you know, 400,000 employees, massive company. But every time he spoke to you, you felt like he was listening to you he made time for you and um you just felt like you were the only person he was interested in and and i i always try to do that with people as well it uh, doesn't matter if my phone's ringing my email's going he he just was looking down the screen at me talking to me and uh, so those type there's been several but that's a few examples that spring to mind okay so what is the most important thing that that any of these excellent gentlemen have taught you uh, look i have too many for just one to spoil it down to one i i do believe i'd said right at the beginning i'm an optimist I, I i think someone very early on told me things are never as bad and never as good as you think they are so when everyone's telling you everything's perfect don't believe that when everyone is telling you it's a total disaster it's probably not as bad as that either so you know that that's always been really good advice because I think it prevents overreaction and it prevents panic and it prevents, but it also prevents complacency because it also means, Hey, everything's great. We're doing fine. Everyone's telling you there's no problem. There's always something. So I always like that piece of advice. I think the other thing is someone told to me quite recently that I've been telling people a lot recently, but I think it's a great leadership message is good leaders implement decisions. They don't agree with. So we've all, we've all, been in the situation there's been a debate there's been a discussion decisions got made the really good people go out and implement it with rigor anyway that's what good leaders good leaders do it's easy uh it's easy to implement something if you if you've agreed with it but if the decisions come down and you don't agree with it you still have to go out in front of your organization in front of your team and you have to execute and and i think that's really important and i think the final one that i always think about is 
where you really learn about people is in the hard times and in the crises. So, you know, we've all been in this industry on the upside. And from 2012 to 2015, everybody was doing great. Everyone's strategy was perfect. Everyone's team was good. You know, everyone's sales plan was working. And then from 2015 and then the downturn and then COVID, actually, you know, we started to realize we had some real issues. And and you really saw who the leaders were at that point. You understood Leadership, you only really see, I think, in crisis. In in in, it's it's easy to be uh, it's easy to be there in in the good times. It's it's stepping up in the hard times was where you see the real leadership. I think. Okay, so how do you step up in the in the in the hard times? So I I always tell myself it's kind of a long winded story, but there's a story about an American Air Force pilot who later ran for, in, as a vice president who was imprisoned during a, a war, and he spent a long time in prison. And he was um, talked about uh, how people got through, how he got through the very hardest. Obviously, this is a, you know, as, as hard as an extremist situation as you can find yourself in. It's nothing about you missed your quarterly numbers. I'm not trying to compare it to that. So this is like a very serious position this gentleman found himself in. And what he said was, at the end of the day, you have to, people who are overly optimistic won't get through it. Uh, it'll be fine. We'll be home tomorrow. It's all going to end. That doesn't get you through something like that. Doesn't get you through the hard time because you quickly realize it's, you burn yourself out. Equally, people who just come in completely negatively are also unable to cope with the situation. So you have to find, it's, it's remaining optimistic, but being brutally honest about the situation you're in. And it's called the Stockdale paradox. And it's about, okay, we'll get through this. We're going to find a way through. As a team, we'll, we'll get through this. But we need to recognize that we have some real challenges that need to get dealt with right now, or we won't get through it. So I, that, that paradox, is, is, I think, is really interesting and, and a really useful tool. Okay. Excellent. I was going back to what you were saying before about how, as a CEO or a manager, you would have to really roll out a decision that you didn't really agree with. That that must be really difficult. So. Yeah, it's it's like I say, the, the hard things are what define great leaders for me, right? The hard things are what leadership is all about. Like I said, getting the, the fancy job title and the payroll and the uh, nice office and all of those things. But what comes with that is at times really difficult moments. And to me, it, it, it is a true definition of, of, uh, of leadership is that you can do hard things. You can, you can make those hard decisions and you can do something that perhaps wasn't what your recommendation was, but you still roll it out with integrity and, and vigor. How would you even do that? That that would be really difficult. I would think so. I think you have to do it the same way. You have to have the same exact the same approach if they took the decision that you agreed with. So it should be invisible to your team whether you agree with it or not. Because if if you agreed with the decision and you agreed with the action and you agreed with what you were being asked to do, you would go at it in a certain way. And and the trick is to make it indistinguishable to your team if 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 it's not that case i mean we've we've all seen the well we know what happens initiatives fail not because they're bad initiatives but because middle managers and lower level don't don't see value in them don't believe that they're going to contribute and so they don't execute them because and they don't see any consequences for that is is why that 
tends to happen. Okay. Excellent. What is the the most challenging thing about your current role? Look, it's still very early for me, Michelle. So I've been here 30 days. It's a very new type of organization for me. It's a very diverse organization. And I've given myself 90 days to, to travel around, to meet membership sections, to go to some of our key events like Offshore Europe, to uh, work with the board who are all volunteers. They're all members who have volunteered and given you know, the time and energy to, to join the board. And then meet the staff that we have in, in our six offices around the world. So I, I'm still in an observation phase. And I think it would be a little unfair if I said something 30 days in and then was, was, was had to retract it later. So I don't know what the answer will be. But there are a lot of challenges to this society. But there are also a lot of positives and, and a lot of great people. And, and the fact that it is run by volunteers is uh, super, you know, it just wouldn't exist without the membership and without the volunteers. So there's a, there's a real, um, there's, there's something very special about that. Okay. So do you think there will be any challenges that you would have to face? Yeah, there will be. And I think anytime you have a, a large group of people, you know, you're obviously trying to make decisions and find solutions that as many people as possible within that group will agree with. But I think even in, in our industry, there's, there's clearly a wide range of opinion on what the energy transition means and what we as an industry should be doing. And so, you know, I think the biggest challenge may be, you know, finding ways forward that, that the very wide range of opinions held within our organization are all satisfied. Okay. Excellent. So have you ever encountered any career disasters? You know, I was thinking about that earlier because I know you asked that question. I, I, I wouldn't classify any of them as disasters because obviously I'm still here and things have gone well and, and I've been able to, to keep going. So, you know, there isn't one thing I look back on and say, well, that was a disaster. There was definitely mistakes that I've made. And and I would look back on and I would say, I, I wouldn't do that now if I was given the opportunity to do that again. And and I know it's a little bit of a cliche to talk about, you know, learning from your mistakes and those types of things. But um, sometimes cliches are cliches because they're true. I would actually say, you know, honestly, I probably, I think the founder of um, Sodexo is a gentleman by the name of Pierre Ballon. And he just said, if we've been successful as a company, it's because the sum of our successes are greater than the sum of our failures. And and I kind of feel like that's where I've got to. There, there are plenty of failures. There's plenty of successes. And when you add them all up, I'm I'm just on the positive side. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I I think you just have to take take them and learn from them and move on. Okay. So has there been a decision that you've previously taken that you, I know we were talking about hindsight is a very great thing. Yeah. Were to take this decision again, would you still take the same decision? Have you ever been in that situation? I would phrase it slightly differently. I would say there have been times, and, and let's talk about things like integrity and, and ethical things where, you know, as a leader, you, you have to show up in that area. And I think in past, I've 
maybe given someone the benefit of doubt or let things slide and then found out that the, the problem was much worse. And if I just dealt with it, I could have could have prevented whatever. I don't want to be specific, obviously, on something like that. So I, I think what I've learned is, especially around questions around ethical behavior or integrity, you, you can't just, you've got to, you've got to intervene. You've got to step in and, and you've got, as a leader, to be seen as zero tolerance. And so I think that's a process that I've changed the way I, you know, I, 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 I like people. I trust people. If they tell me they're not doing anything wrong and okay, I believe you, but that, that's not an area where you can j- just rely on <laughs> good judgment. I, and I think in the past I've I've made poor judgments around those things. But do you not think that you that you really have to trust the team that you're working? With? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I, I think as a leader that you have to be absolutely clear where the boundaries are. Right within the boundaries, get on with it. I trust you. Do your job. But I I, I don't. And again, I'm not, it's, it's the looking back on the past, like I've said, I've given, it's not, it's not that I just randomly decided to look into someone, but someone may have raised a concern and I've sort of brushed it off and said, well, that doesn't sound like the person I know. I've never seen them behave like that. I've never heard them say those words. So, you know, maybe I'll get, I'll, I didn't act quick enough and then it becomes nearly always becomes a problem later on down the road because you didn't step in early enough. And the higher up you go, the less people want to talk to you about bad stuff, right? So, you know, you'll you'll probably go and complain to your supervisor about something that you might not tell your boss and you certainly wouldn't say to the CEO. So sometimes it's hard to get that information. It's hard to have those conversations. Okay. That is probably true. Do you think that a lot of CEOs or the higher up the career ladder you go, the more unapproachable can seem to become? Yes. I, I think it's the perception is one thing. It may not be true, but there is a perception. I think, you know, I've been in the industry a long time. I think leadership has changed over. So the guys who were the leaders 30 years ago, and I use the word guys specifically because they were all guys 30 years ago. I think we've done a better job of of being a more diverse and a better led industry. So I think it got better. I think people understand some of these things a lot better or care about them a lot better, a lot more than they have in the past. But yeah, I, I think it is something leaders have to work on. I, it's it's what's interesting about being a CEO or being a very senior level person is the skill set that gets you into the job, the skill set that gets you promoted, the skill set that gets you noticed and put on the high potential list and gets you promoted. And then when you get into these type of roles, it's a completely different skill (laughs) set. You're actually not always prepared well, I think, for these types of roles because you Everyone thinks you get a fancy title. Now you have all the power and you can just tell people to do things and, and everything gets easier. Actually, it gets a lot harder in my experience because people don't, you know, they don't see you. They don't, you, you have to lead by influence. You have to lead through example, which is what I talked about around integrity. You have to lead, yeah, in a sort of a remote way. Because if you really want to boss six people around and control their job, then be a supervisor and have a team of six people. And then you can sit in front of them every day and tell them exactly what you want to do. And you can 
you can run that team. You know, when you have thousands of people working for you all across the world, it gets really hard. <laughs> gets really hard to get them to do things. So you have to have a very different approach and um, a different skill set. Okay. So what kind of skill set would you need? Well, there's no magic recipe. Okay. I think just as, you know, there's no magic answer to the, how, how do I, whenever someone says, well, how do I get to be a CEO? There is, there's no magic answer for that. Everyone's route is different and luck plays a part in it. And sometimes the failures that force you to set back end up being the best thing that happened to get you to another company or get you into another role. So there's no recipe for being to get into CEO and there's no recipe for being a CEO. But I, I think, um, and so you'll find examples of people who do one thing really well and other things not so well. And, and definitely I, I do that as well. I, 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 I see I have some strengths and then I also see I, I have some blind spots. And I think that's true for, for all CEOs probably. There's probably a few who can do everything, but not many in my opinion. Okay. So what is, would you say that your strengths were then? Yeah. I, you know, this is where I get, start getting uncomfortable. I think I tried. I think I'm empathetic. I think I tried to. I, I try to be. Uh, try to use more of the emotional, my emotion, my EQ rather than my IQ. Right. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm. I'm pretty good at picking up when people are unhappy, when people are not satisfied, when something unsaid is not being said in the room. So I would say my strengths lie on that EQ soft skill side, mm. and not so much on the super hard skills, uh, financial or technical side. Um, so yeah, I think it's more on that soft skills, interpersonal stuff is, is probably where I think, uh, I'm most comfortable. Um, and, and I, my gaps are probably more on some of the hard technical stuff. Okay. So do you think it's important to have empathy as a manager? I think it's, I think it's more important. Yeah. I think it's an absolutely crucial leadership trait that I, I think was lacking in the past, but I think we're doing a better job of it now. Okay. Cause I agree. Because I think that the, cause I've been in the, well, the energy sector for quite a while as well. And I have seen, even when I was a young engineer, I have seen that there has been a lot of changes in the management style over the years. Yeah, we talked, uh, I do think on reflection that I missed one point, I think we talked about soft skills like empathy, but I also feel like curiosity is a, is a really underrated leadership trait. And uh, I would really rank it highly as, as, a, as something that you see in, in good leaders. I think continuing to be curious about, well, everything from how your own business works to, to, to the broader industry, to industries outside your own to learn and get new ideas. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it is changing. And I think that's in part because it's becoming more diverse, both in terms of gender, but also in terms of nationalities and culture. And uh, I think that helps, right? If you're going to operate in a very diverse and, and culturally diverse industry, you need to be empathetic and you need to have those soft skills to navigate, you know, those cultural challenges. Yes, I agree, actually. I do agree. So if you were going to hire a graduate, what would you look for? You know, that's a great question. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that one very much. I think I would be, um, 
I would I would say I would be looking for something more than just a great academic track record. I would be looking for show me where you've done things where you've exhibited leadership skills, whether it's in a you've been in the student chapter of SPE or you've been in a sports society or you've been in a you know another type of charity or nonprofit thing. I I, I would say show me where you've where you've had leadership experience because I hire graduates. For the job they're coming in to do, sure, you're a technical person, I need an engineer, but I'm also hiring people who I think can improve my organization and and looking forward, as I've said, those technical skills will only take you so far. Those technical skills will take you to the point where you now need to learn some of these other things. So I would look for leadership things. I would look for volunteerism things. I would look for so people who see more than just their own, who have a something about that there's a bigger world that we live in, there's a bigger picture. So volunteerism, I think, would be interesting. And then I would look for, what, what have you traveled? I, I think it's really important in this industry that you recognize you, 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 you know, you're going to be working in a very diverse and changing culture. So, you know, have you, have you traveled? Have you moved around? Have you spent vacations in other countries? Do you speak another language? Uh, you know, that one of the most common questions is, what would you, you know, do you miss regret one thing and I really still feel like an idiot that I can't speak another language and then I'll go into a room with Dutch people and Norwegian people and they speak two languages three languages you know so and I think uh, I think those types of skills I would look for other than just the technical skill do you think having traveled or even having worked abroad helps your career well Yes, obviously, for me, I think it helped me. This is the problem, though, of saying that my recipe, what worked for me won't necessarily work for someone else. For me, there was no question. The fact that I moved to the U.S. and got involved at the corporate level of Halliburton very early in my career, so I knew a lot of people and had a great network. The fact I was willing to go and live in Nigeria for for three years and, and took my family there and we lived there. I had a whole different range of operational experiences, you know, that that I would never have got if I'd stayed working on the Gulf Coast or gone back to Aberdeen. You know, we then went and spent time in the Middle East and and got exposed to that culture, which is hugely important now for the SPE. You know, our largest sections in Saudi Arabia and or one of our largest. So, you know, we have a lot of so having lived in the Middle East and been exposed to that culture, I think, is really helpful. So for me personally, it's been absolutely, I'd say, uh, a key to the, to my career. What country that you've worked in has been your most favorite? There must be loads. There's loads, and I, I'll have very fond memories of Aberdeen. And, and that was because at that time, you know, there's all the other things that are going on. There's the job, but there's also your personal life and your family and all of those things. So having been in the U.S. for a long time, when we came back to Aberdeen, my daughter was young. We were um, we were near my parents who had not been away for a long time, so we saw a lot of, a lot of my parents, and and they both got sick and passed a few years later. So if we hadn't have had that experience, it would have been very different. So we both have my wife and I both always look back very fondly at our time in Aberdeen for sure. But um, you know we've loved everywhere we've been, and and I think we've had great experiences and made great friends, and and uh, there isn't one that I would not wouldn't go back to quite honestly okay excellent so what keeps you motivated when times get tough i think it's a couple of things i think in a leadership role it's seen for the team they see me come in 
and I'm down. And if I'm not showing that I'm excited about what we're doing, if I'm not showing that I think we're we're going in the right direction, you know, if I don't feel that I can do that, then I'm not helping my team. I'm not leading my team. So, you know, if I, I feel like it's really important that uh, as a leader, you show up and and it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's sort of that circle. You have to believe in it and you have to show other people you believe in it. And then you get that positive feedback that everyone is sort of buying into it and you can feel that we're making progress and, and that makes you want to do it more. And, and so, yeah, sort of uh, one motivates me or it, it, it's the other way around. But yeah, the idea of excited about what i do makes me excited about what i do <laughs> if that makes sense i'm obviously passionate about this industry when i did leave sodexo you know i i'd had that one foot in the facility space that that they are in and and you know looked at some opportunities to to kind of go back into the facility space but i wanted to come back to this industry and i wanted to be at the part i wanted to be part of this whole transition and and be part of what the next wave of energy looks like to a, my very, very small degree. But uh, I wanted to at least have a, have a plot, part to play in it. I was going to ask you a question about that because Sodexo is so different. Well, I think it's such a big different difference in companies between Halliburton. Yeah. Obviously the company that you're working in just now, the Society yeah. of Engineers. What did you learn from working in Sodexo that you could bring forward? Because they must have been totally different to, to the way that they operated it. Yeah. I think I really had to work on my soft skills. So it was easy in Halliburton to write someone a two-line email, hey, get this done by Thursday and hit send or, or you know, you know, and again, but in, in a French company, in a French culture, that, that was very rude. You would, you know, you would have to write a little paragraph and, and say, I hope things are going well. And uh, I have a favor to ask of you. And would you be willing you know, to do this? So working in that different culture, I really needed to work on soft skills. It was extremely diverse. So it was um, gender balanced at the leadership team. It was gender balanced at the board level. Uh, I my team that I led was was uh, gender balanced. So, yeah, you know, honestly, I worked in Halliburton for 22 years. I never had a female boss, and I probably managed a handful of women in, in 22 years. So I got, you know, opportunity to both have a female boss for a while, which was good for me, and and also have the opportunity to manage more diverse teams and and learn, yeah, what is acceptable and what's not acceptable, and and fine tune that that part as well but i think the other thing i learned a lot was you know you you could list all of the differences between the two companies as well and, and there were a lot but there's also what you also learn are people are people so cultures can vary a lot but individuals people actually are, are very similar <laughs> we all have very similar psychological kind of uh, makeup and and so it sort of also taught me that skill set trouble you can move between these type of industries you can be a leader and and move into very different roles i didn't have any technical knowledge and it turned out i didn't need any technical knowledge to be in that company so that makes you think about well in that case maybe i could hire someone from another industry in because it's about the leadership it's not about the technical skills they have or the degree that they have 
it's more about you know do they have the right skill sets and and soft skills and leadership skills okay interesting i think we get very hung up on industry experience and stuff like that but as someone once told me you know 30 years of industry experience isn't much use if it's 30 years of the same year over and over and over and over again <laughs> That's 30 years of, that's 30 times one year of experience. So, you know, I think we get very hung up on technical qualifications. We put, we need master's levels degrees. We need petroleum engineering. You know, we set very high bars sometimes on certain roles that I don't know that actually that that's helping you find the right people because they're not technical roles, they're leadership roles. Okay. But then that would be, I would agree with you with that if it was, yeah, because the higher, yeah, I was going to say the higher up you go, the less technical you need to be, I would have said. Yeah. At one point, you're going to have to be hands off. Yes. Which, which not a lot of individuals might find that that easy. And, and that goes back to my point about it's actually quite hard to be a CEO or a very senior executive because – you have a maybe you have a department and you have a department head who did the job you used to do and you want them to do the job the way you did it because that's the right way to do the job because that got me promoted and so you get these sort of very kind of difficult scenarios the worst thing was also i always someone i always think about that the worst job to take is the one that the, your boss just got promoted out of because they're going to say, I know exactly how to do that job. I've just been promoted and I'm going to now tell you how to do that job. And it is hard, I think, for people to, to take a step back and let somebody else do the job and let them run the department how they run want to run the department and maybe change the process that you wrote to a better process. But it's not, that's sometimes hard to do. They would think that that would be quite hard to do for a lot of people, actually. Yeah. And so you have this idea of people who get to a point where they're no longer successful because their skill set no longer fits the needs of the role. And that, so you can end up with the wrong people in jobs. And, and if you get enough of that, it starts hurting the company because you get promoted to a point of incompetence. <laughs> yeah, I can certainly, I can certainly agree with that. But how do you know if, if you've hired the wrong person though? Is that even a thing, though? Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> we've all made that. We've all done that. And and look, I think even the, I think the numbers are pretty clear. And and I've haven't changed much in in a long time. Thirty percent of your hires will probably not work out. Thirty percent of your hires will be exceed your expectations. And thirty percent of your hires will, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> it worked out, but maybe not the superstar I would have liked to hire. I think that stat is driven a lot by focus on people hiring for the job that they're coming into and getting quite technical and not necessarily looking at what is their scope to develop softer skills, to take on new responsibilities, to step away from the technical side. And and, and so my working theory, and it's just a theory, is that stuff's equally, if not more important than what degree did they get, where did they get it, what did they score on their A-levels, those type of things, I don't think are great predictors of success. Because there is a lot, especially when you're coming out of university, there is a lot of pressure to get like maybe a, a first or yeah. 
And look, I don't want to be on there saying you don't need a first. <laughs> That's why I'm saying what, what works for me isn't necessarily what's going to work for someone else or isn't going to work for another employer. But yeah, the, the life path and the, where I've ended up was not something I had any vision to when I was 18, 19, 20, 21. So the, the you know, the idea that you've, You've made decisions back then that they impact the rest of your life. I, I don't know that I totally agree with that. And I've got a daughter who's 18 who's going to university next year. And she doesn't really know what the plan is. And I've said, my advice is pick something you're really passionate and interested in. Because at least you can get up every day and go to school and you've got an interest in the subject. If it's not, if it's not a clear, if it's not like, and then there's a paying job at the end of it, or there's a clear career role, like a, you know, like a technical degree, like an engineering degree. I'm okay with that because you go in and trying to study for four years on a subject that you have no real interest or passion in is, is not going to work out either just because you think it might get you a good job at the end of the day. I, I, my advice would be pick something you're passionate, interested in. And I think there's a lot of people say, the money will find you if you're good at what you do and, and you're passionate about it and, and you like it, the money thing will sort itself out. But going after the money is probably not the right answer. Mm -hmm. But that's, again, that's for me. Someone else may feel very differently about what their son or daughter chooses to do at university. And I, I'm totally cool with that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I do agree with that. So did you always want to be a CEO? Nope. No, no. Uh, you know, at some point, yes. But and I think, as I said, there was a, when I first went to Halliburton. Sorry, first went to work for Bayroid in Houston, and 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 the guy at the time I didn't mention his name earlier. His name was Joe Taylor. The guy at that time was telling me, "You could do this. You could be anything. You just need to decide and commit to it." And and so he sort of planted the seed at that point. So I was twenty six, twenty seven. Actually, yeah, why not? Why couldn't you go to the top? Why couldn't you be, be end up being the CEO of this company or that company? But it wasn't like an overnight thing. It wasn't um it wasn't a master plan. I I I guess I'm using my own example. I, I was doing things I liked, I enjoyed them, I was passionate about them, I had success, and that success presented more opportunities. Okay. Sounds good. Is being a CEO everything that you thought it would be? I think what it is, I would describe it as overall, of course, yes. I, 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 I sought this job out and I wanted to be the CEO of the society and then I was excited about that. So, so that, but I think what, what I've learned is uh, a skill set that you require to be a good CEO is, is a capacity for disappointment because you will be the one who has to deal with the big problems. You will be the one who gets the bad news about the contract that wasn't won or the uh, financial loss that wasn't expected or the uh, issue with your legal entity in the country that's made a huge error. And people are, you know, everyone is capable of accepting good news. Hey, we won a contract. Things are going well. Um, that news sort of gets dissipated through the organization and everyone's comfortable with that. Being a CEO, there are days where it feels like, you know, a tough day and it feels very lonely because it feels like the problem has nowhere else to go. It's just on your desk and now you have to deal with it. So there are definitely low points and you need to be able to 
to deal with that. Like I said, the capacity for disappointment, but the highs and the rewards offset that. So the net result is a positive one for me, but there are definitely hard, hard days in, in, in the life of, uh, of, of a senior executive or a CEO, for sure. I'm not going to ask any more questions. I think that's. Uh, I think that was a really good ending. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. We're going to go again. That's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Simon for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.